0: If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 19. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 19. We are going to be in verses 41 through 48 in our time together this morning. Luke 19, 41 through 48. Jack has served us well the last couple weeks, taking us through the bulk of chapter 19, and then we will finish uh, 19 today. Of course, In our journey through the gospel of Luke, for the last 10 chapters, we've been making our way to Jerusalem, as Jesus, we are told, has set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem and what he has going on in these last uh, four plus chapters. So we'll be in Holy Week for the next four chapters, five chapters of uh, Luke's gospel. So Luke 19, 41 through 48, as you keep that in mind, it'll be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Gospel of Luke 19, starting in verse 41. God's word says, And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Verse 45, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those whose souls, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers he was teaching daily in the temple the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words amen this is God's word and may God write eternal truth on all of our hearts a little over 50 years ago a young relatively unknown playwright named Andrew Lloyd Webber penned a rock musical with his friend Tim Rice that would helped launch his career and would see decades of commercial success despite it being mostly panned by critics. The musical would become a concept album, a Broadway play, a movie, and a tour that could still be attended sometimes today. The musical, which is something I would not recommend, not only because it's purposefully inaccurate, sacrilegious, or as Billy Graham said, borderline blasphemous, but because it's objectively bad is called Jesus Christ Superstar. The story is given through the eyes of Judas, and it tells of a version of Holy Week. But biblical precision was not the goal here, you understand, okay? Jesus is presented as not at all divine, but merely a man who has doubts and fears and even teases a romantic relationship with Mary Magdalene. But while the problems with the play are legion, there is one scene in particular that is perhaps far more profound than even the non Christian writers knew or intended. Now, the scene in question takes place at the triumphal entry, which you looked at last week, where many cheering, of course, and adoring people fill the crowd. They're surrounding and pressing in on Jesus. And it's at this point that Simon the Zealot sings a song to Jesus. Now, Simon the Zealot is one of the least talked about disciples, right? But he's called Zealot because before being called by Jesus, he was part of this Jewish sect that advocated for the violent overthrow of Rome. Okay, that's true to the writer's credit, and it's reflected in the song. This is what he sings, okay? He says, There must be over 50,000 screaming love and more for you. And every one of 50,000 would do whatever you ask him to keep them yelling their devotion, but add a touch of hate at Rome. You will rise to a greater power. We will win ourselves a home. You'll get the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, what is profound about this is not necessarily in what Simon says there, but about how the Jesus character responds. So in the middle of the excitement and the hubbub, Jesus isn't excited. Rather, he is subdued, even sad. And so after telling Simon that neither Simon nor the crowds know what power truly is, this is what Jesus says, okay? He says, if you knew all that I knew, my poor Jerusalem, you'd see the truth, but you close your eyes. While you live, your troubles are many, poor Jerusalem. To conquer death, you only have to die. So in this scene in which there is great enthusiasm and joy and singing and celebration, you have one person who's not rejoicing. And in fact, it's the reverse, reserved, thoughtful, even lamenting. And it doesn't really match the mood of the scene whatsoever, right? Don't you think when others are celebrating and shouting and excited, it's easy and natural to join in? Don't you think so? To be sad while others are celebrating and shouting and excited then, you either must be a party pooper or know something that the rejoicers don't. This is the mood in the scene in that otherwise wretched play of the triumphal entry. And this is the mood that is in our text this morning. In fact, the irony here is that those non-Christian playwrights may be closer to what the true mood was on Palm Sunday than many Christians are when they think about or act in like a church play Jesus' is riding in Jerusalem on that day in 33 AD. Now our text falls immediately on the heels of the triumphal entry. But its mood is so different. And the excitement is short-lived. Whereas the adoring crowds were chanting for Jesus to be their conquering military Messiah, Jesus remained silent. Because Jesus knows what lies ahead of him over the course of the next week in Jerusalem. He knows that he will enter the city as a conquering king, but he knows that he will conquer in a way no one would expect which is partly why he sees Jerusalem as a city full of people who completely miss who he is and why he's there. Jesus does not at all get caught up in the fervor of the fickle crowd and he never does. Jesus doesn't buy into the way the crowds on Palm Sunday hail him. He isn't after a hip hip hooray he isn't waving at onlookers like some sycophantic politician. He doesn't ask to be thrown on their shoulders and carried through the city. He doesn't sign autographs and exchange high fives. He doesn't take it all in and bask in the adoration of the people. Instead, he does what we see in verses 41 through 48. So here's the scene. Jesus is riding on a donkey towards Jerusalem as a crowd chant for him in words that betray what they really want from him. Their words are really words of revolution. Think about it. They're in Jerusalem in the Passover, yes? You guys know the Passover? In which is a celebration of a time when God rescued Israelite forefathers from wicked oppressors, right? Does that know what the Passover is about? And so at present, they are being oppressed by Rome. And they hear of a man. Who could be the long-awaited Messiah? So what are they expecting? What are they hoping for? See, we like the singing of the triumphal entry, don't we? Because people are excited. It gives us warm feelings. Maybe you remember a time in church where cute little kids wave construction paper palm branches or something, you know? And on top of that, it sounds like the people got it right, doesn't it? They're shouting what? Save us. We think they know why Jesus came, but they aren't crying to be saved from sin, nor from Satan, nor from death, but from their temporal occupying forces. They don't want salvation from their wicked hearts. They want salvation from their wicked government. So they cheer. Maybe this is the Messiah who will go and overthrow our oppressors, they think. Maybe this is a man to lead Israel back to prominence. Maybe it's finally our time. But as Jesus is riding and Jerusalem comes into view, he doesn't look and say, ah, there's the city that I've come to conquer. What does he do instead? What does he do instead? When he sees Jerusalem come into view, he weeps. Now, don't picture, okay, a few tears trickling down the Lord's cheek, okay? Don't imagine like how you get choked up in an emotional scene in a movie starring Nicolas Cage or something, all right? The term for wept is a strong one. That means something like sobbing, even wailing. These are not low-key, held-back tears of some fellow who's trying to posture that he's too masculine to let it flow. Jesus wept, if we can say this, a great weeping. We must picture a sobbing and wailing here Because that helps us see what Luke is actually saying, and it helps us get a fuller picture of the heart of Christ. Because why is he weeping? So we're meant to recall here another time when Jesus lamented in Luke's gospel. Do you remember? Let me read it to you from chapter 13. It said, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stuns those who are sent to it. How often? Would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So why is he weeping? It's because over and over and over again, God had called the nation to himself And over and over and over again, they have rejected his gracious offer. Now here is God in the flesh. The long-awaited Messiah, the one their Bibles have repeatedly told them about, and they reject him. That's why he weeps. The other part is that now it's too late for them. The door of opportunity for the nation to respond to Jesus' coming in grace has now closed. Jesus wished it weren't so, but this is what they have chosen. Just as when Jesus said, I would have taken you under my wings, but you weren't willing. He's saying, I wished that you would have known what makes for peace, but your rejection of God's messenger of peace has made you blind. And now judgment awaits. So you must see it in Jesus' lament here, a mix of pain and anger and frustration because his heart, listen, is for sinners. Jesus' heart is for those who can't save themselves. Jesus' heart is for people who have gotten themselves into a mess and can't get themselves out of it. Jesus' heart is for the weak, it's for the needy, it's for the helpless. But as we've said over and over again, even though what I just described characterizes literally every human being before God, one has to recognize and admit these things. We must admit helplessness in oneself. What is it we say all the time around here? All you need is need. But most people don't have it. Jesus wants them, but they don't want him. Do you see? And even though he is patient and kind, long-suffering, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, his invitation isn't open forever, and so he weeps. He weeps because he sees the future. He weeps because he sees the past. God has sent prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger, to call the people to himself, and over and over again, they have rejected, rejected, the word of the Lord. Is that not what Jesus lamented in chapter 13 that I read you a moment ago? Now you look back at the pattern in Israel's history and what happens. They get opportunity after opportunity and grace upon grace and they're obstinate and they're wicked and so they're carried off into judgment. God used foreign invaders to come and sack Jerusalem in the past and to take them into captivity. Did they learn their lesson those other times? Maybe for a while maybe when a remnant was brought back, but inevitably they slip back into the wicked ways of their forefathers. And here they are now with Messiah himself among them and they reject him still. So Jesus looks and he weeps and he says, you will be overthrown. As he looks less than 40 years into the future, when in fact in 70 AD, Rome will come, surround Jerusalem, sack the city, destroy the temple, And kill many of its citizens. And Jesus wished it weren't so. But this is what persistent rejection of Christ does. Yes? Listen, this is going to be an important thing I say here. Persistent rejection of Christ inevitably leads to judgment. Persistent rejection of Christ inevitably leads to judgment. When Jesus says that the things that make for peace were hidden from their eyes. He's not saying that God pulled some kind of trick on them and had hidden the things that they needed to know from them and then punished them for not knowing them. They are hidden because of the people's own continual rejection and ignoring the warnings and call to repent and return. They have no one to blame but themselves. When you continually refuse God's call, when you keep telling Him, you don't want Him Or his Christ, eventually, he'll give you what you ask for. Do you realize this? Which is life and eternity without him. The Israelites were a privileged people indeed. They only had, they not only had the scriptures, but they had the Messiah visiting them, and in their time, and in the flesh, and they missed it because of their own hard hearts. Think about how privileged we are. We're privileged in a number of ways, aren't we? It'd be in 2023. We could be warned of coming disasters in our day, right? If there's an impending weather event, for example, we have many ways of knowing in advance, don't we? We have TV. We have phones. We have uh, internet, social media. And so if, say, there's a hurricane coming, we can get a decent idea of the time of its arrival, right? The where it will be at different points and potential devastation that it will bring. And then we could do what? We can prepare, can't we? Why is Hurricane Katrina hailed as such an epic disaster? I mean, in many ways, we are helpless to nature, right? The world is trying to kill us, and there's not a lot we can do. We, you can't stop a hurricane. But there were warnings from experts for years to fortify the flood protection system like the levees. On top of that, more lives were lost because people were given warnings and refused to flee. Now, to be fair, there were some who couldn't leave financially, right? What if the government had a better evacuation plan in place? What if they took the warnings about the levy seriously? What if those who could flee actually took more seriously those warnings? See, when there are warnings and when they're clear and when they're loud and they go unheeded by people who could do something about them, who's to blame? ultimately. Friend, we need to hear what's being pictured here lest we too presume how many have grown up in church and went to Sunday school and went to youth group and sat the way that you are sitting to listen to sermon after sermon week in and week out and they know their Bible stories and they know their songs and they've heard the gospel and it's done nothing to their heart. How many have heard about Jesus for years and years and years and live a life that can be described simply as Christless? How many people are privileged to live in a free country where they need not fear going and hearing the gospel proclaimed, who have had opportunity to hear the message and have heard it and yet have done nothing with it? Haven't responded at all. How many hear the warnings of impending doom for those whose hard heart, hard their hearts to the things of God and have remained hard hearted? How many sit passively in a service like this and the word of God no longer stirs their hearts and souls and minds and they walk out unchanged? How many, like this Jerusalem, have presumed upon their heritage or their deeds or their goodness or their church attendance or their religious record and that they are headed for the judgment? How many have grown up in church and have eventually drifted away because the beauty of Jesus had never truly gripped their hearts and affections and imaginations, and they continue to presume upon those other things? How many has Jesus visited through his word and invited them to enter into the kingdom if they persist in their rejection of God's Christ? would they presume that they could put off responding to God and have plenty of time and opportunity to eventually turn? Why? How? How can we presume when we see here that the door closed even to people who saw and heard and touched Jesus in the flesh? We need to hear the same lesson and hear the same message that Jesus is giving them which is that persistent rejection of Christ inevitably leads to judgment. Eventually, they'll be hidden from your eyes. Eventually, it'll be too late. Would we take that risk? So this is what we do, though, right? We look at these verses, and we see verses like these, and we see Jesus tell them that their enemies are going to come and they're going to surround them, and they're going to tear them down with their children, and there will be no stone left untossed, and we go, whoa, that seems a little harsh. You hear me say that judgment, Everybody bummed out because you just heard judgment for the last 15 minutes, and we, we hear about judgments coming to those who persist in rejection of Christ and say, I don't like the sound of that one bit. I mean, who likes to talk about judgment? What we like is the parts about love. Can't we talk more about that? Why bother with this judgment business? We like the love. We struggle with this idea of judgment. I mean, who doesn't like the idea of grace and pardon? Right? Why spoil that with we'll talk of judgment and condemnation? You see what? This is what we often fail to realize. Grace and pardon make no sense without judgment and condemnation. <laughs> If there's no judgment, what exactly are we being given pardon for? If we don't deserve condemnation, what do we need grace for? We are not properly scandalized by the love of God when we forget that we don't deserve an ounce of divine love. And you know, I can tell that we're thinking wrongly when we are more offended by judgment than we are of Grace. What offends you more? The idea of judgment or grace? See, it's the grace of God that's actually offensive. Is it not? It's the judgment of God that makes sense. But how often are our categories mixed up? It's judgment that's deserved. It's grace that isn't. Don't we forget that? Don't you think? And isn't that why we aren't falling over ourselves about the gospel? You know, late Tim Keller, he was a pastor in Manhattan for many years. And he would have these Q&As after the worship services. He would just hang back and anybody who wanted to ask questions, come up and ask him questions, okay? And on one occasion that he mentioned in his book, Reason for God, there was a woman who said to him that the very idea of a judging God was offensive. And this is a very common American posture, right? Keller said to her, why aren't you offended by the idea of a forgiving God? She looked puzzled, and he went on. I respectfully urge you to consider your cultural location when you find the Christian teaching about hell offensive. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that for those who experience injustice on a daily basis, who experience horrors done by people as almost a way of life, they wouldn't think God's judgment as strange. They would be outraged if he was only love without judgment. Don't you see? Which is another word for justice. I'll give you another example. Miroslav Volf, he's a Croatian, familiar with the effects of injustice on victims. He made a similar point to Keller. He said this, my thesis will be unpopular with many Christians in the West, but I suggest imagining that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone. He said, go over to a war zone give a lecture. And in this lecture, among those people who are listening to you are people whose cities and villages have been plundered. Okay? Then they were burned to the ground unspeakable horrors have happened to the people fathers and brothers have been brutally killed he says then you give this thesis we should not retaliate since God is a perfect non-coercive love soon he said you would discover that it took takes quite a a suburban home for the birth of a thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge in a scorched land soaked in blood of the innocent it will invariably die Keller and Volf you see are saying essentially the same thing that it takes a privileged mindset to be outraged by God's judgment and not his grace because grace is arrogantly expected and because we don't experience injustice at the levels that many around the world do today on top of that we all have yes i have it too a little prosperity gospel in our dark little entitled hearts and then we think we're pretty good don't we Especially when we compare ourselves to other people like the Pharisee in the parable. In that case, what room is there for judgment? Do you see? No one wants to be judged, but if we think we don't deserve to be judged, then we don't know our hearts very well. And we don't know God very well, and we don't understand sin, like, at all. We think judgment seems mostly arbitrary. Can't God... Forgive everyone? And we can live happily ever after in heaven? Why must anyone go to hell? Why must anyone ultimately be judged? Apart from the fact that those who have suffered persecution and injustice and oppression would be outraged to hear that their oppressors would get away with every wicked thing, let's remember who we are before a holy and perfectly just God. And let's remember what Jesus, God in the flesh, is saying here. He's saying... That he has come and visited them and they missed it. But why did he visit? Why did eternal God feel the need to come and take on flesh? Because man is so bad that they couldn't redeem themselves or be redeemed otherwise. Jesus is saying that in spite of man's sin and rebellion against him, this is a scandal of the gospel. They has made the greatest move in history, Condescended and take on flesh, and he's come to them and been among them, and he's loved them, and he's preached to them, and he's warned them, and he called them to repent, and he's done mighty wonders and signs, and spoke as one with authority, and called to them to respond, and yet what? They did not know the time of their visitation. Not because God blinded them, but because they refused Christ. And that refusal made them blind. In other words, this is self-imposed. Christ has visited in grace. But next time he visits, it will be in judgment. But that's not because he's harsh. It's because that's what the people chose through the rejection of him. You see what Jesus says? He has come, look at your text, he has come and offered them peace. Do you see it? Is peace not the essence of the gospel? Is the gospel not the message so that God has come, become flesh, and died in place of wavered humanity so they could draw near to God and not be judged because their sins have alienated from their Creator. Is not peace with God our greatest need? Look, I know you're Baptist and you don't talk much, right? You give me nothing up here, okay? Is peace with God not our greatest need? The problem with Jerusalem and the nation here is that they seek peace seemingly in every other locale except where it could be found, namely in Jesus. Is Is peace not what every person is chasing? Is peace not why we do what we do? Some look for peace in a beer can or a bottle of wine. Others in drugs, others in their looks, others in relationships, others in validation, others in recognition, others in popularity, others in acceptance, others in how much money or things they have, others in the success of their children, others in their social media feeds, others in their consumption of entertainment, others in their busyness. Others even ironically look for peace in conflict and in tearing other things and people down. I could go on and on and on all live long day, but you get the point, don't you? All people are on a quest for peace, but it doesn't come because it can only come from one place and it isn't any of those things I just mentioned, which is why we are both tired and empty in our pursuits for peace. You know, our pursuit of peace in all these other different ways is like running on a treadmill and then wondering why you're in the same place as you started. A large part of it is that we fail to identify why we're so empty. Why we need peace at all. Why are we so restless? What's at the root of it? Behind all of our discontent is that we are at war with our creator. If we realize that then we'd see why drinking and relationships and money and acceptance and our kids' success and our accomplishments don't seem to bring us any closer to peace than when we began. Now, all this ties together, doesn't it? Let's put it together. Since we are sinners, we are rebels. And what are we rebelling against? Our Creator. We're rebelling against God. This is why we deserve judgment and not grace. It's why we're restless and discontented. Do you see? C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, fallen man is not simply an imperfect pre- creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you are sorry, realizing that you have been on the wrong track and get ready to start life over again from the ground floor. This is the only way out of the hole. This process of surrender, this movement, full speed, astern, is what Christians call repentance. So what's our greatest need? To be at peace with God. That's our greatest need. You walked in here this morning with all kinds of things you thought you needed. This is what you need. Peace with God. How can that be obtained? Not by our doing, only through Jesus Christ. And he says that even though we don't deserve grace, it can be found in him, but it must be grasped while there's still time. Some of you are restless, and this is why. You know you need peace. But you are looking in all kinds of wrong places. And since they inevitably fail, you have to keep looking. There are people in your lives who are restless. And this is why this discontentment comes from the fact that they are at war with their God and they need peace, but they're looking everywhere except where it may be found. The peace we need comes only through the broken and resurrected body of the God, man, Jesus Christ. And that's it. It can be found nowhere else. My friend, have you found that peace in him or are you restless? Augustine was right. Wasn't he when he wrote one of the greatest sentences ever written? He said, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. you know, Lewis illustrated, I think this is helpful, this profound truth that, that Augustine was saying. He compares man to an engine. Okay? He said, God invented us like man invented an engine. A car is made to run on petrol. And it would not run properly on anything else. Right? We all get that. So try putting something in your vehicle's engine that's not gas. Okay? Will it work? Throw some Diet Coke in there. Put some water, canola oil. Will it work? Don't go do that. Okay? And be like, Vaughn said, and then sue me. Okay? Don't do that. It's for illustration. Now, because it was designed to only run on one substance, anything else is destructive. Are you with me? Lewis said, now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. It does not exist. Where will we find peace and wholeness? In Christ alone, that's why we were designed. Everything else will leave us empty. But now, there's one more thing that demands we be asked before we move on. Here the Lord of glory weeps because of the people's sinfulness and the rebellion and the rejection and the subsequent judgment that will come upon them. That's why he's weeping. He wails and he mourns. He laments and he cries out because he wished they would have chosen differently. Now, here's the questions I want to ask, and it comes in two parts, okay? First, how is our community doing when it comes to seeing Jesus for who he is and repenting and following him? Of living in light of his visitation? Of embracing his peace? I think we have to conclude that the answer is, for the most part, that our community, our state, our nation does not heed God's word and has not repented and embraced God's Christ. Our nation is, at present, no better than Jerusalem here. So then here's the second question, right? It has to be this. How do you see them in light of their rebellion? How do you see them in light of their love of sin, in light of their trying to find peace where it cannot be found, in light of their rejecting Christ? How do you look at them? You notice Jesus does not call Jerusalem names. He doesn't tell them how dumb they are. He doesn't scoff at them. He doesn't look at them with disdain. He weeps. It's grievous to him that they are headed for judgment. My friend, when you, my Christian friend, when you look at people wallowing in sin and exhausted from their trying to find peace and all these different things, do you look down on them? Do you take on a self-righteous posture? Do you call them names or look at them with disdain? You say that they've gotten themselves into this mess or do you weep over them? Yeah. Who's going to weep over them? The church has taken the mantle of our Lord. His mission is our mission. So his heart must be our heart. He weeps over sin and calls people to repentance in love. He warns of coming judgment. Is that what you do? See? Jesus, the only person, perfect person, to ever lived. Yes. If anyone could be self-righteous and condemning and look down upon people, it was him. And yet, he wept. Do you? Don't we have a responsibility to weep for them and in tears call them to Christ? You know, we talked a moment about, ago about how we don't like topic of judgment, right? But. Not liking the topic doesn't mean that judgment isn't where all people apart from Christ are headed. Our discomfort doesn't change divine reality. Isn't it kindness, my friend, to warn people who are headed to a Christless eternity? Is that not a kindness? Isn't it cruel to know the answer to what brings peace and keep it to ourselves? Did not the author of Proverbs say, deliver those who are taken away to death and those who are staggering to the slaughter, O, hold them back. Did he not further say, if you say, see, we did not know this, does not he consider it who weighs hearts and does he not now know it who keeps your soul and will he not render to man according to his work? Who will weep for them? Who will go and get them? We'll, we must move on, okay? So we are next taken from the outskirts of Jerusalem into the heart of the city, okay? Namely, into the temple. What we see is, is what is typically referred to as the temple cleansing. That might be the header that you have in your Bibles or Scripture journals. But Luke's version of it is much shorter than the other gospel authors. This is all he says, okay? He says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. That's all he says. So, if this is a cleansing, in what sense? Now, when I was thinking about this. I was thinking of the idea of cleaning and cleansing, and I was reminded of how, I don't know if you remember this, but like a couple years ago, there was like a boom in like different new methods of doing like deep cleaning of your house, like for spring cleaning and stuff like that. Do you guys remember that at all? There was a Swedish death cleaning, which sounds like an awesome metal band that I would listen to in my office, it was really... A method to clean your house in view of your own death. Okay, So, you know, you're cleaning your house thinking of what's going to be left behind for your family to have to clean up after you, right? Uh, the other popular method, I know you remember this, came from a book in a Netflix show by Mary Kondo, where you basically, is that how you say her name? Kondo? Take things you own. This sounds exhausting. Every single thing you own, you take, and you sort of sit with it, and you meditate with it and you ask, does this spark join? And if it doesn't, you throw it away, right? Which, if I did that, just, my house would just be books and my PlayStation. You know what I'm saying? But whatever method you use, you, you'd come across a lot of things, right? If you did this deep clean, and you find would be broken, some things would be incomplete, or they just outlive their usefulness, right? And should just be thrown away or done away with. Now, if I can compare our Lord's actions here, are like Swedish death cleaning in that his actions are done with his death in view at the temple. Not only that, but the temple no longer brings God joy. It doesn't bring joy at all. Not to him, not to the people, not to the nation, not to the spirit, not to the Father. It has outlived its usefulness. It has been replaced with a truer and better temple, namely Jesus himself. The temple has failed, like the nation on the whole has failed, to be and do what it was meant to be and to. Therefore, Time is up. So in some sense, Jesus isn't cleansing the temple, is he? As much as he's declaring its end. Jesus' actions are what we could call an enacted prophetic parable. They are, they are prophetic actions of cessation of temple activities with destruction in view. The same destruction that he just wept over. See what happens. Luke says that Jesus went to the temple went to where those who were selling sacrifices for the Passover were, he drove them out, he quoted some scripture, and that was that. That's Luke's description. So what's going on here? Why did Jesus do this, and what is he saying? See, you know, this is what we do. I think we misunderstand this text. We typically look at the driving of money exchanges and sellers of sacrifices and assume the sellers are the ones Jesus is upset with, right? We think he's upset with these buyers and sellers. Like, we think the problem is that these fellows are selling goods in the temple in order to make a profit. But it's actually, that's a legitimate business here that Jesus drives out. You remember, it's Passover. Like, 200,000 people who don't live in Jerusalem have shown up for the holiday. And they need to exchange their currency so that they can buy sacrifices. Right? So, how else would travelers get sacrificed for Passovers if not for this? But 1st century, just some gee whiz, historian Josephus said there was a year where over 255,000 lambs were sacrificed at one Passover. There were a lot of people there and they needed to buy animals, right? So this is a necessary business in order to make the proper sacrifice. So what's the deal? See, we need to see that the tears and the temple action go together. The nation has failed to respond to God. We've established this, yes? They have failed to worship Him properly. Their ethics have not matched their words. They have failed to go to God in humility and recognize that his Messiah has shown up. That's why Jesus wept. That's why Jesus does what he does in this temple. Again, it's not about the money changers. Michael Bird said when Jesus entered the temple and overturned table, he was not complaining about the mixing of religion and economics as if objected to a mega church gift shop. Exchanging coins and providing animals for sacrifices more convenient than a con for travelers from far away. So what's the problem? This is what I want you to do. In your Bible or scripture journal, I want you to note this phrase, den of robbers. Den of robbers. See, this is where the confusion comes in, right? We think den of robbers associated with Jesus' action of driving out money changers, we think that they're robbing people in the temple. Isn't that what you've always thought? And through corrupt business practices. Maybe they're overtaxing or whatever. But think about what a den of robbers is. Okay? Okay. A den of robbers, or a cave of bandits, is not where robbers do their robbing. A den of robbers is where robbers retreat to after they're done robbing. You see, a den of robbers is not a place to commit crime. It's a place where robbers find safe haven and sanctuary. This is a key for what is going on here. It's where they find safe haven and sanctuary after they've done their crimes. So if a den of robbers were a place robbers did their thieving... Then that would be like a team of bank robbers who hang out at the bank immediately after robbing the joint. Or an employee stealing a large sum of money from their employer and then going to work the next day. Right? To help us understand this, I'm going to read you this passage that Jesus is quoting. You could go there if you want. It'll be on the screen from Jeremiah 7. This will unlock the whole thing for us. Okay, Jeremiah 7, you can turn there or it'll be on the screen. The Lord calls Jeremiah to go to the temple and preach this sermon. I'm going to read you part of it. Listen to what he says. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord, of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds. And I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land I gave you, gave of old to your fathers forever. Okay, pause. This is what's happening. Jeremiah is listing all these things that the people are doing and the leaders, religious leaders are doing in the community, okay? You see all their sins? They are oppressing the sojourner and the followers and the widow. They are worshiping other gods. And then they're going to the temple and saying, this is the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord. Verse 8, you must, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Here's more. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after another god that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered only to go on with all these abominations. Has this house, here it is, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord, and then he goes on with the sermon. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus, in the tradition of Jeremiah, is calling out the temple and the leadership and asking, Do you think that divine worship excuses you from divine justice? That all God wants is regular attendance at God's temple rather than loving justice and seeing it done in the land. See, Israel, in Jesus' time, was repeating what their forefathers in Jeremiah's day had done. Jesus remembered that, and that's why he wept. Because this posture leads to destruction. The people had lived daily lives divorced from a love for God and neighbor. And then they went to the temple and went through their religious ritual and thought that somehow kept them safe. They presumed, like the people in Jeremiah's day, what do you think, my friend? What do you think? Do you think it's okay with God to live as one wishes day to day as long as you do your religious duty? That's what they were doing. What, what, can one live six days failing to love neighbor as long as you go to church and go through their actions of religious worship? You think that's okay? Can one live a godless life every day as long as they go through the motions of heartless worship? Here's the question of all questions. Does God accept worship that isn't from the heart? So Jesus says this is why the temple is being shut down. God rejects religious ritual if it comes from a heart that is not for him. God rejects worship if not given for love for him. God never allows religious ritual to become a cover for the lack of a life lived for his glory through proper treatment of others and a pursuit of obedience from a heart set free. He searches scriptures in vain and you will not see God accepting mere religious duty and nothing else. F.B. Meyer said, There was an evident divorce between religion and morals, and whenever that comes into the life of a nation or an individual, it is fatal. Satan himself has no objection to a religion which consists in postures and ceremonies and rites. You guys know the passage in Amos, for example, right? God says, I hate and despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings. Let justice roll instead like waters and righteous like an ever flowing stream. Why does he reject those activities? Aren't those all good things? Those are things God commanded them to do. God rejects those good things because he knows through their day-to-day life of injustice and persecution of the poor that their worship is empty and ritualistic. Not from a heart for God. you guys know, you guys remember Jesse James? Right? Um, crack went to high school with him. He lived in the 1800s. Uh, <laughs> he was perhaps America's most it's been a while since I made an old joke on him so I won't know. Most notorious outlaw, right? Jesse Jink. Uh Did you know that his dad was a pastor? And did you know that even while he was a bank and train robber and murderer, he was a member in good standing at First Baptist Church in Kearney, Missouri. So you know what he would do? He would rob and he'd kill during the week. And then he'd get his suit on and he'd come to church and he'd sing the songs and he'd listen to the preaching and then he would leave and he'd repeat the process. That's what Israel's doing. Now, not only are they passively ignoring injustice against widow, orphan, refugee, and poor, they're actively oppressing them and then they go to the temple and they do their religious duty and they think would scoring them points with God. You know, I wonder, are we in the danger of the same sorts of things that they were? Are we, too, tempted to use religious ritual and duty to cover over lack of obedience? Are we susceptible to live six days disconnected from Christ's precepts and assume it's okay with God because we come one day a week or a couple times a month and we do our religious duty or because we're relatively moral and go to church sometimes? Is it possible that Jesus' ethic does not drive our daily lives and then we come and we sing and we say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord? Does then the church become a cover, a safe haven for a lack of day-to-day worship of God through a life lived in light of grace and Christ's lordship? Do you guys think that's possible? Worship should be transformative, should it not? Encountering God's grace through word and song and community are fresh reminders of who we are in Christ and what God has done through Christ. It thus should be something we give that then informs how we live. But instead, we are tempted, as I am tempted, to fall back to our default mode of religious ritual and earning that's disconnected from daily life. Is worship another checklist item on our daily week of t- the task, or is it a driver of our lives? Do we come into worship every week expecting to be confronted and comforted by God? Do we expect to have a special encounter with him here that we can't get anywhere else? Or do we come once a week or once or twice every couple months and feel as if we've done our duty? God should be happy with that, right? With the scraps we toss his way. Is it not the easiest thing in the world to rest on the laurels of our past and present religious accomplishments and assume that those are sufficient? As we segment our lives between church and everyday ethic, then church turns from a gift of grace to a mechanical religious checklist. Is God honored in that? It's much more difficult, yes, to live a life centered on Christ where one pursues costly obedience and is driven by Christ's ethic, that's harder. But is there anywhere else to find peace? As you can imagine, these words and actions by Jesus are not well received by the religious leaders. We're told in verses 47 through 48 that they were seeking the religious leaders, looking intently for ways that they could get rid of Jesus, who is upsetting their comfortable lives, but they couldn't just yet, we're told, because the people were listening to him, and they don't want to face the wrath of the people. But we know in this coming week, they will get their wish. But only because it's Christ's wish first. But now, let's put everything together, okay? You see what's happening in these texts? <clears throat> They're all connected. But I want you to think, who is it that keeps rejecting Jesus? Who fails to worship him? Who fails to receive him? Who wants to destroy him? These are the most religiously pious people in the nation. People who go to the temple. Is that not everybody in this text. People go to the temple. They know their Bibles. They give. They fast. They know their rituals and chants. They, They are even religious leaders. In other words, Jesus is rejected by society's worst, but by society's best. They were confronted with a choice, just like we all are. The choice has to do with Jesus, and it's a choice all people must make. You have to make this choice in your life, and you will today, my friend. Will you crown him, or will you kill him? You notice in the Gospels that people are never neutral to him. Have you noticed that? When it comes to Jesus, they're never confronted with his person and his claims and shrug and go. They either want to bow down or reject him. They either want him as Lord or they want nothing to do with him. You cannot, like the crowd on Palm Sunday, take Jesus on your own terms. You cannot, like many today suppose, see Jesus just as a neat guy who had some nice things to say. You cannot call him a great moral teacher that would be good to listen to from time to time. You can't take him halfway. You cannot receive him and place him on the peripheries of your life. You will either see who he is and what he's done and say, command me, my Lord or you will reject him like the Pharisees and scribes do. You'll crown him or you'll kill him. What will you do? How will you respond? This text is asking, who is Jesus? How do you worship? Have you received peace between you and God? Answer these questions in your heart. Are you restless or has your heart found rest in God through Christ? It was the latter, do you live in light of that? Have you been visited by him and have thus recognized that visitation and bowed your knee to the crucified and resurrected King of glory? You see the heart of the Savior? It's for you. He desires you go to him and receive him and make him the center for your life. Will you go to him? Will you go to him again? Peace is only found here through the truer, better temple, through the truer, better sacrifice, the King of Glory.